thank you again for the invitation to be here and for the, the singing. God, in His wisdom, ordained the worship service in such a way that we would begin with singing. God never gave us a, a prescription in terms of exactly how long we were to sing, exactly when we were to pause for prayer, or how often we were to pause for prayer, or or how long preaching were to go. He, he, he's left that up to us to determine we have uh, a way that, that suits us in general that we, that we follow. But he did say to begin with singing. He said, enter into his gates with thanksgiving and into his courts with praise. You think of the tremendous wisdom of God in, in charging us, commanding us to enter in in that way. I will tell you that from a preacher's standpoint, uh, I would not want to try to preach having not been able to hear the saints of God lift up their hearts in prayer. There is an encouragement that comes to that. Uh, when you can feel the Holy Spirit of the Lord uh, walking in the midst of the candlestick, as it were, and, and, and feel the presence of Jesus, it is an encouragement to then try to move forward and attempt to look at some things that are in God's Word. I love you. I hope you know that. Um, know with a certainty that uh, I have not always left Georgia being uh, feeling like I'd had liberty. There's been a few times I've crawled home from Georgia, but I have never left Georgia without feeling that I'm loved. And I appreciate that. That speaks uh, very well of you and, and of your kindness towards God's people. Master, you turn with me, if you would, to uh, the epistle of Paul to Timothy in 2 Timothy. I'd like to look at some things that are contained there. When we approach 2 Timothy, uh, and, and I would in, encourage you to, uh, to, to sit down regularly and read it in its entirety. It, it, won't, uh, it won't take you but about 20 minutes to read. And read it not only as what it really and truly is, the inspired Word of God, but also read it as what we understand it to be, to be essentially the, the last words of Paul. Uh, certainly at least it's the last of the uh, inspired letters uh, to the best of our knowledge. And that great defender and projector of doctrine and truth, uh, perhaps more than any place else in his writings portrays his heart. The Apostle Paul, when he writes this, knows that his time is short. He says that he's ready to be offered and the time of his departure is at hand. If historians have it correctly, not too long after this, the Apostle Paul was taken out of the dungeon cell that he was in and led out into the road there near it, into the Mamertine Way, and his, his head was cut off. And when you read this letter to Timothy... You read the letter from a man who's in a dungeon cell, who is cold, who is lonely, who really is hoping that Timothy is able to get there before he's executed to be able to lift his spirits somewhat. And so when you read it, I would ask you to read it there and notice the heart of the Apostle Paul as he writes this letter. Because through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, 
and through the heart of the Apostle Paul himself towards Timothy, you find a man who almost with his dying breath, not exactly, but, but close to it, certainly with his farewell, does what he can to attempt to encourage Timothy. And to tell Timothy, Timothy, what you are doing as a minister of the gospel of Jesus Christ is worth giving your life to. Now, I, I would desire to, to be useful to all of God's people who are here tonight. And that's been my prayer the last few weeks as I've approached this. Those have been my exact words. Lord, would you let me be useful? Uh, not, not knowing what useful is, is going to be. Uh, but, but God knows what useful needs to be. Uh, but I would in particular address the subject and the verses that are on my heart this evening uh, towards my brethren who are called to preach the gospel. Timothy, from the best of our knowledge, was somewhat of a timid man. He was, had a personality uh, that certainly is not uh, what we would describe as, as type A. Timothy could apparently easily be uh, cowed or discouraged, uh, could be made to lose heart. There was one of the churches, I, I think it was the church in Corinth, if I remember correctly, that the Apostle Paul had to, uh, had to uh, bow up on him a little bit, you might say, and, and said, when Timothy comes around, uh, don't, don't be up to your normal hard-headed tricks. You know, be, uh, be gentle with Timothy because he's, he can be discouraged easily. And Timothy knew the things that, I'm sorry, the Apostle Paul knew the things that Timothy and the church had either just started to go through or were about to be going through. Because they were standing on the edge of a period of time of persecution that's certainly unlike anything that you and I have ever seen in our lifetimes and uh, God willing that we would, would never experience. Uh, there was an emperor named Nero who was doing unusually cruel things. If you think that we've seen the, uh, the levels of, of uh, humans' ability to be cruel to other humans, go read sometimes what Nero did to Christians. Uh, you know, uh, in the U.S. sometimes folks will have tiki torches and things of that nature uh, to, to light backyard gatherings. Uh, his were made from Christians who were alive on those poles until they were consumed by the, uh, the flames and the, uh, and, and the damage done to them because of him putting them on poles and setting fire to them. I'll pause it at that, but I will tell you, I, I think every member of God's church at some point in their life ought to read Fox's Book of Martyrs. You're going to have to leave it in little bitty doses. And it's not for, uh, there's an appropriate time for it to be read. And that's not early in life. I'll just say that as a, as a note to the parents. But it, it, it's good for us to remember in our time of relative ease what those have had to go through at times who love Jesus Christ. And to be, uh, you know, to get here, we had to go around a little bit of traffic, Brother Stephen. <laughs> and, and that's the end of it. You know, as we sat there in his air-conditioned car, but the Apostle Paul knew that Timothy was going to endure hardships. And so as we go to 2 Timothy chapter 2, 
The Apostle Paul is attempting to encourage Timothy, reminding him in the first chapter that God has not given us the spirit of fear, but of power and of love and of a sound mind. He tells him in verse 13 of chapter 1 to hold fast the form of sound words. He tells him in verse 14 that good thing that was committed unto thee, keep by the Holy Ghost which dwelleth in us. And then he says in verse 1 of chapter 2, Thou therefore, my son, be strong in the grace that is in Christ Jesus. And the things that thou hast heard of me among many witnesses, the same commit thou to faithful men who shall be able to teach others also. Thou therefore, endure hardness as a good soldier of Jesus Christ. He doesn't tell him to avoid it at all possibilities. He doesn't tell him to be a masochist and to go and seek out trouble that he doesn't necessarily need to go through. He simply tells him that when it comes, Timothy, endure hardness as a good soldier of Jesus Christ. He then goes on to encourage him to the commitment to the ministry. And in verse 7, where I'd like to start, and if the Lord would, would be with me and with you this evening, we'd like to look at the 7th through the 13th verses. He says, Consider what I say, and the Lord give thee understanding in all things. So he first reminds Timothy of the great truth that drives everything that we do as the church of Jesus Christ. If Christ is not raised from the dead, then everything that we do here is absolutely pointless. That's why the Apostle Paul, as he showed the Corinthians of why the doctrine of the resurrection from the dead was so critically important, would culminate that with saying, but now is Christ risen from the dead and become the first fruits of them that slept. He said, Timothy, you need to remember something. That there is an imperative cause that, that has um, been the reason why you've been given a gift to preach. He said, remember that Jesus Christ of the seed of David was raised from the dead according to my gospel. He said, Timothy, remember this first. You serve a Savior who is alive. You're about to have a father in the ministry that is dead but you will continue to serve a Savior that is alive. That's what he reminded him of. Paul's life was going to end. Christ is alive forevermore. And he says Jesus is the reason that you have a gospel to preach. Remember that Jesus Christ of the seed of David was raised from the dead according to my gospel. Wherein I suffer trouble. As an evildoer, even unto bonds, but the word of God is not bound. Paul says, my condition of imprisonment, my condition of bondage, the limitations that I have as a, a man in being able to go and preach and teach does not in any way limit the power of God. In fact, in some ways, history has shown it uh, to be a thing that causes God 
to shine with, with, with a thunderous glory and open up doors to the gospel in ways that the oppressors of the gospel could never even have imagined. But Paul anticipated the question that would come next. You know, most in terms of, of pure writing, pure ink on page, as you might say, I, I've never, like I've never measured it, so I'm saying this with some amount of supposing. But if we were to take the passages of Scripture that are particularly teaching salvation solely and completely by the grace of God without the instrumentality of human means, and we were to look at all the verses in the Bible that are paying particular attention to that, I would suppose that it is the writings of the Apostle Paul that would have the most ink on paper in regards to teaching those particular things. Certainly, much of it in the Gospel, but if I, if I had to take a guess, I would say passages of Scripture that are particularly and directly related to that, Paul probably has more of them dealing with that subject than, than any other inspired writer. So Paul knows the question that's going to come. Paul, you're in jail. And you're about to have your head cut off on the road out back of the jail. You've been beaten with whips. You've been stoned and left for dead. You've been shipwrecked. You've been chased all over everywhere and had to be, you know, let down by a basket, if I remember correctly. You've endured agony and pain and trouble and, and you've foregone so many of the other uh, blessings of life that even other ministers have had in your pursuit of preaching the gospel of Jesus Christ. But Paul, you're the one that taught us what you do in your ministry, what you do in preaching the gospel is not going to add or subtract one individual into heaven. Paul, your, your preaching has not caused one person to be in heaven that would not otherwise be there. We know this, Paul, because you taught us that. So Paul, what's the point? Why? Just, just stop now and maybe they'll let you live. I think in a way Paul anticipates that question because look at what he says next. He says in verse 10, therefore. Therefore why, Paul? Because Jesus Christ of the Son of David was raised from the dead. That's why. He said, therefore... I endure all things for the elect's sakes. Now, I'm going to chase a little small rabbit here just for a second, but this is yet another place in the Bible that when we see all things or all men or everything, you want to stop and look at the context because did Paul endure everything that was possible to endure? Uh, History would tell us, we know that Paul didn't have a wife and that Peter did have a wife. And history would tell us that Peter's wife was also a martyr. That was a pain that the Apostle Paul didn't have to, he didn't, there was, every single possible way a person could hurt is not, Paul didn't have that when he said all things, but he said everything that I have endured. 
He said, I endure all things for the elect's sakes. Now watch this. That they may also obtain the salvation which is in Christ Jesus with eternal glory. Now how do we obtain eternal glory? Purely by the meritorious activity of Jesus Christ. That is how eternal glory became ours. The Bible says, this same writer, when he writes to Titus, he says, in hope of eternal life which God, who cannot lie, promised before the world began. Eternal glory is the the sure inheritance. It's an inheritance that's um, undefiled and that fadeth not away, reserved in heaven for you. Why? Because of what Jesus Christ did. If you're in the habit of underlining or or highlighting, I would encourage you to, to mark that little word also because he said there is also a salvation. There is also a deliverance, a benefit that the child of God can have now that they can enjoy with eternal glory. They're going to enjoy eternal glory regardless of what the Apostle Paul does. But what the Apostle Paul does And what the gospel ministry of today does is done so that the child of God can obtain a salvation that is in Christ Jesus with eternal glory. With eternal glory. And he says, I preach and I suffer for preaching so that these people of God could have something that they wouldn't have if I didn't. And we we all think about that sometimes. You know, it's easy to get the mindset, well, somebody else will take care of it. The Apostle Paul is early on in the lineage of gospel ministers. There were a lot that were going to come after him, but the Apostle Paul realized that he had a ministry to do and the benefit of his particular ministry was going to be to those that he benefited. And Paul says, if if I don't do my job, one of them might lose out on the blessing that they could have, not eternal glory, but on this salvation that they could have. And then then it's almost as if here, the Apostle Paul, as he goes into uh, verses 11, 12, and 13, and this is mainly where I wanted to get to, It's almost as if the Apostle Paul gives a synopsis of the things that he's been preaching. He takes a phrase that um, we find a few times in the Bible. He says, it is a faithful saying. Some places he says, this is a faithful saying, or this is a faithful saying and worthy of all acceptation. Now, it's hard to know exactly how to take that, Brother Stephen. (laughs) Because everything in the Bible, in terms of it being the inspired Word of God, is a faithful saying. There is nothing in the Bible... Paul's not saying, well look, um, in the book of 2 Timothy, this part is the extra inspired part. He's not saying anything of that nature. He seems to be saying uh, something that's similar to what we'll say sometimes as preachers when we may be trying to present you with a lot of information that's tremendously important, but you'll hear somebody say, look, if you don't get anything else I say tonight, get this part of it. It's almost as if he's putting 
putting this place in, in bold type for Timothy and saying, Timothy, make sure that you're grasping this particular concept. And he reminds him of a summary, as it were, of the things that he's been preaching. He says, it is a faithful saying. For if we, and there's a, there's a colon there, so he then presents this, this, this collection of, of scriptural dogma, as it were, that he's about to impress again in a small, summarized format for Timothy. He says, Timothy, and I'm, I'm paraphrasing somewhat, he says, number one, don't forget this. For if we be dead with him, we shall also live with him. If we be dead with Him, we shall also live with Him. The, the death of Jesus Christ was a substitutionary atonement. It was a substitutionary death. A little word for is an important word. And it has, in the English language, a lot of different usages and a lot of different meanings. Uh, sometimes for can be used uh, because of. When you go over to the fourth chapter of the book of Romans and you look at the very last verse of that uh, chapter, it says this, who was delivered for our offenses and raised again for our justification. Well, there it means because of. He was delivered for or because of our justification. He was raised again for or because of, I'm sorry, delivered for our offenses. He was raised again for or because of our justification. There it's because of. But when it comes to the matter of the death of Christ, God puts it in very simple terms. Go with me if you would over into the fifth chapter of the book of Romans and let's look at the expression there. Romans chapter 5. And let's say um, verse 8. Verse 8, Romans chapter 5. But God commendeth His love toward us in that... While we were yet sinners, forward phrase here, Christ died for us. Now there, what does it mean? There it means Christ was for, in other words, in the place of us. Christ. To say it in any other way would be to have Christ being punished for something that was His wrong. Christ was on the cross and Christ died solely and completely in the place of. The Bible says of Him that He is the spotless Lamb of God. Now let me go farther than that. He is holy, harmless, undefiled, and separate from sinners. There is no spot in Him. Pilate got one thing right when he looked at him and said, I find no fault in this man. You want to know why? Because there was none. So everything that Jesus Christ suffered, He suffered because He was the substitute. He died for us. The Lord hath laid on Him the iniquity of us all. All that Christ bore, He bore because our iniquities, our sins, and the sins of all of the elect family of God were placed on Jesus Christ. And because of that substitutionary atonement, He dying for us, He took our place and everything that Christ did then reflects in a benefit to us. And so Paul says... He died. We died with 
Him. Because when He died, when He died, we died in Him because He was our representative, He was our substitute, He was our sin bearer. And He said, because that's true, it is absolutely just as true as we shall also live with Him. Why? Because He died for us. So He says, Timothy, first thing I want you to remember is, if we be dead with Him, we shall also live with Him. And then he gives this statement. He says, if we suffer, we shall also reign with Him. Now, it is an accurate statement that we will, uh, how does the Bible say it, reign as kings and, and priests to God. It is an accurate statement that we will reign with Christ in the sense of being partakers and enjoyments of the uh, heirs of God, joint heirs with Jesus Christ. And that may be the ultimate substance of the statement that the Apostle Paul is making here. But I'm going to submit to you that the context suggests that he's saying even a little bit more than that. And it's hard for us to get it. Because right now, thank God, we, the people of God, the church of God who are meeting here in this place, aren't under the same circumstances. You want to see a picture of a man that reigned? I want you to go over to the book of Acts and look at a young preacher named Stephen. And I want you to see Stephen as he's preaching the doctrine of Jesus Christ. And he's so infuriating the Pharisees and the, the henchmen that they had with them that they take their coats off and they lay it, ironically I know, at the feet of the man who pins a second Timothy here. And they take rocks and they begin to beat Stephen with them and, and crushing the life out of them. And what do we see here? Do you see a defeated, broken man going to his death? Child of God, I'll submit to you, see a man who is reigning in that moment over the past. Oh, look, where's Stephen's scream? Where are they? You hit my finger with one hammer. <laughs> it will not sound human. <laughs> Where Stephen screams? I don't fight. Why? I'll submit to you because God allowed him in that moment to reign. <laughs> to reign over himself and over the circumstances in, a, in an extra ordinary way what tremendous grace does God give to those who truly suffer for the cause of Christ we don't know not in our own experience not in the way that these say why because we've never walked a mile in those I thank God that we don't I pray we don't have to I'd be a fool not to recognize that we live in a society that's becoming more and more and more hostile to the things of the Word of God and to those who would follow Jesus Christ. But I don't know what it feels like. But here's what I know. 
History and the scriptures are replete with individuals who when suffering for the cause of Jesus Christ overcame in ways that defy our abilities to understand. Why? The best answer that I can give you is if we suffer, we shall also reign with Him. Because I can't explain it any other way. Now, he then goes on and says this. He says, if we deny Him, He also will deny us. Now, someone may say, oh, that's where the doctrine of eternal security falls completely apart. Well, hang on for a second before we get there because it's not going to. The doctrine of eternal security is, is going to be just as secure when we finish this. He says, if we deny Him, who? We. That's the easy part to skip over sometimes. If the world denies Jesus and He's going to deny them in the last day, that's how, how it sometimes gets twisted and turned around. But, but, but who's He talking to? We. Now who is we? Brother Caleb, I'll tell you, I can name two people that is we at a minimum. Timothy and Paul. If nobody else is included... The apostle to the Gentiles, Paul, and the pastor of the church at Ephesus, the minister Timothy, are included in the word we right here. I'll submit to you, it expands to God's people everywhere, but I know at a minimum, the apostle Paul is not talking about the world and them out there. At a minimum, the apostle Paul is talking about Paul and Timothy. All right, we, we can say that with an absolute certainty when you got one person talking to another person and they say we, we at least can include them in the number and I'll submit to you that it's to all the rest. So he's not talking about the world. He's not talking about the quote unquote all them out there. He says if we deny him, he also will deny us. Well, the Bible says this, the Lord dealeth with us as with sons. How do we deny God? How do we deny God? We all want to run in our minds to the Apostle Peter. He denied Christ three times. There it was. They asked if he, if he knew him and he didn't do it. Well, I don't know that any of us have had the exact same experience as the Apostle Peter. We tend to deny God in a different way more often than not. We deny Him the obedience that He deserves as being our Father and our Creator. We deny Him the respect that we're obligated to give Him. We deny Him worship. That, that's one of my personal self-frustrations so much, and, and maybe some of you can relate. You know, what advantage then hath the Jew much every way, for unto them were committed the oracles of God? What advantage then has the individual that was raised up in the old Baptist church much every way, because unto them was committed the oracles of the gospel of the New Testament church? But sometimes, familiarity can breed contempt. And it's a wonderful thing for a mother 
who, who knows the hymns of Zion by heart, to be able to rock a child into seeing Amazing Grace or here in the vineyard or lead kind of light to them and not need a songbook because they're singing that song for the 7,000th time. But you know what the downside of that is? We can enter into His gates with thanksgiving and into His courts with praise. And because we've sung that hymn 7,000 times, we can put it on autopilot. You know how often I do that? I'm not going to tell you. You might not let me preach tomorrow. I mean, it, it, it's, it, it's, it's too easy sometimes. You've got to force yourself to bring the mind and the heart. We deny God worship. And so God dealeth with us as with sons. Now, back when the kids were young, I'm getting somewhere, stay with me. Back when the kids were young and they were all at home, everybody loved to go to the local Mexican restaurant, Del Sol. It was just, it might have been because at that time I think it was the only restaurant in Charleston, but they also just really liked the food that was there and the unlimited chips. And so quite frequently it would be, Dad, can we go to Del Sol tonight? When do you think I was more likely to accept or deny that request? When I came into the house and Ashley looked at me and said, our children have been so well behaved today. They have helped me with this and they've helped me with that and I'm really proud of them. Or when I came in the door and she said, your kids have been heathens. <laughs> when, what, what, when do you think I was more likely to say, uh, sure, and let, let's do it. Or, it was when they had behaved. Right? We understand that. We, we get that. What Paul's making here is a simple statement. We can't live like the devil and expect God just to rubber stamp a yes to every prayer we ask to every petition that we raise, well, you know, Lord, I hadn't, I hadn't uh, even cracked the Bible yet today, but um, oh, I got to preach tonight, or I hadn't cracked the Bible this whole week, but I got to preach tonight. So just um, you know, shower it on down, God, and, and you know, lift me up and let me preach. Uh, you, you, we, we understand when we stop and think about it, we say, no, God dealeth with us as with sons, and when we seek after Him. And whenever we are not denying Him the obedience and the respect and the reverence and the worship that He's called us to give Him, we enjoy God's smile. But when we don't, He denies us. He doesn't say, depart from me into everlasting punishment, you wicked, I never knew you. He says, no. Those of you who followed uh, NBA basketball in the... Uh, in the late, that's, I'm probably referring to Brother Wynn here, in, in the late 80s, remember Dikembe Mutombo? You know, and his, he, he wasn't very good, but he was really good at blocking shots, and then he would stand and he'd wiggle the finger right there. It was a denial. Somebody would try to shoot and he was denied. Look, if we deny him, God tells us no. Now, sometimes, let me tell you something. His mercies are new every morning. And God's not a God that has this exact scorecard. And, you know, if you don't do exactly this, you're going to get this. But if you do this, it's going to be this over here. His mercies are new every morning. But He still 
deals with us as sons. And I'll tell you, friends, our lives are going to be filled with much more joy when we live in a way that causes the Father to smile than when it causes the Father to frown. If we deny Him, He also will deny us. But look at verse 13. If they believe not, one little word wrong there, right? Again, Paul's not talking about them, they, those folks. He says, if we believe not. Let's all get on that train together. (laughs) Friends, you and I can be unbelievers. Let me show you a group of men over in the uh, book of Mark. Go with me if you would over to Mark chapter 16. Let's look at some men there. And I'm going to tell you, it's, it's, it's going to be an ugly sight. Because you're going to see a bunch of unbelievers. In Mark chapter 16 verse 14, Afterward He, that is Jesus, the resurrected Savior, appeared unto the eleven. Who are we talking about? We're talking about the apostles. As they sat at meat and unbraided them, got onto them, rebuked them with their unbelief and hardness of heart. What were they when he got onto them? Unbelievers. Brethren, un- unbelief, there, there's, no, there's no magic button. There's no point. There's no something that gets to where we say, well, I've reached this point of nirvana. I've reached this point of perfection. I'm never going to wrestle with unbelief again. This, this Apostle Paul said, he talked about himself and his concerns that if he didn't keep his body under subjection, that he himself would be cast away. Look, there, there are... I've seen children of God. People I knew were children of God. (laughs) Knew with a certainty because I saw their belief and love for Christ and love of the Word of God get so angry at God that they turned their backs to Him and professed that they don't even believe anymore. I guess they're going to hell now, right? You know, the simple fact of the matter is the best that any one of us can say is the same thing that that father said when he cried out to Jesus Christ, Lord, I believe, help thou mine unbelief. He was both a believer and an unbeliever at the same time and knew it. And I suppose that's true of each one of us as well to varying degrees. But Paul looks at Timothy again in this letter and he says, if we believe not... If we believe not, God disavows His eternal covenant. Is that what it says? If we believe not, God says, well, if they had have believed, then they could have lived with me. Is that what it says? No. Because God has made a covenant with Himself. You and I are beneficiaries of the covenant. But friends, there's not a single one of us that has a name signed on that document. 
That, that document, that covenant happened before the foundation of the world. The eternal covenant. When God the Son, God the Father, and God the Holy Spirit made a covenant of grace and a covenant of salvation that would secure to God the Father the eternal glorious destiny of all of His family who He foreknew. And you and I are merely beneficiaries of it. The Bible says the Lord's portion, Deuteronomy 32, the Lord's portion is His people. Jacob is the lot of His inheritance. Let me tell you something, friends. My or your belief or lack thereof will not change whether or not the God who worketh all things after the counsel of His own will, who is in the heavens, who hath done whatsoever He hath pleased, nothing you and I do is going to change whether or not that God gets His portion. If we believe not, yet He abideth faithful. God's faithfulness is not dependent on ours. Thank God that's the case. Thank God that's the case. Yet He abideth faithful. Why? He cannot deny Himself. God has promised Himself that these children. Now he's promised us as well as beneficiaries. But the covenant. The covenant is with God. And it's contained in God. And it is executed by God. For of him are we in Christ Jesus. Who of God has made unto us wisdom and righteousness and sanctification and redemption. If you and I don't believe. We can make a mess of things. And we can lose a tremendous amount of things. And we might cause people that we're close to to lose out on things as well. But it won't be eternal glory. It won't be eternal salvation. Now we see this. And if you'll allow me, Brother Stephen, just just a couple more minutes to to suppose for a moment. I wonder if, if this closing thought in this summary by Paul was of especial sweetness. To Timothy, and here's why. A little bit later on in this second chapter, he goes on and and starts talking to Timothy about the importance of truth and the importance of having uh, good doctrine and, and beliefs that align with the Word of God. And he says in verse 16 of the same chapter, But shun profane and vain babblings, for they will increase unto more ungodliness. And their word will eat at doth a canker, of whom is Hymenaeus and Philetus, who concerning the truth have erred, saying that the resurrection is past already, and overthrow the faith of some. Now, these two men were coming and preaching uh, the original left behind doctrine. And they were preaching that Jesus Christ had already come back, and he had already gotten his people and taken them home to glory. And sorry, uh, you, 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 you weren't there. You were left behind. <laughs> I, I do wonder what that would be saying about the person that was preaching it to you. But, you know, nevertheless, these guys were apparently really, really smooth and, and really well-spoken and able to convince people that it was true. And here's what happened. Some of God's people who who had been able to exercise the faith to believe in the work of Jesus Christ that had been given to them in the new birth. They were a possessor of faith. That's how they had exercised that faith. 
They believed these men. And they said, well, if, if Jesus Christ already came back and got his people and I wasn't one of them, I, I, guess, I guess I'll go fishing. You know, to quote Peter. I, 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 I don't know why I, why, why I bother anymore. He overthrew the faith of some. Some who were possessors of faith. All right? Let's, let's make sure we understand what kind of people we're talking about. Now, I've noticed in this, and here's where I'm going to have to do the, the supposing, so, so bear with me and take it with a grain of salt. But in the way people communicate, when we talk about people with no context, it's when the other person knows the situation that we're talking about. If, um, if I go home and I, and I tell Ashley and I say, Ashley, it finally happened. Laura broke Wynn's kneecaps and he's going to have to have surgery. I don't, I, don't have to, I don't have to say any more than that because she will understand. <laughs> She's giving me an idea, by the way. <laughs> yeah, there won't, be any, there won't be any additional detail. Why? Because she knows Brother Wynn's sister Laura knows, knows what I'm talking about. But if I were to mention somebody that she didn't know, she would, I would have to give her more details. Well, you don't know them, but they're, they're members at, at Trail Branch and you know, go on and so forth. If you ever notice in this situation, the Apostle Paul doesn't give Timothy any other detail. He just reminds him of the situation with Hymenaeus and Philetus. And he says, they've erred and overthrown the faith of so. It's reasonable to presume that the reason Paul didn't go into detail because Timothy would know exactly what he was talking about. Which also probably means that he knew some of those peoples whose faith had been overthrown. Might even have more than known them. Might have loved them. And so how good was it for Timothy to be reminded? Even Timothy, if our faith is overthrown, yet he abideth faithful. Why? Because he cannot, he will not deny himself that which he has covenanted and that which is his. His by election, his by redemption, his by adoption, and ultimately his by glorification. We are his. So may God help us, particularly my preaching brethren, to remember why it is that we preach. It's so that we can remind God's people of those truths and so that they can obtain the salvation which is in Christ Jesus with the eternal glory that is there by a covenant-keeping, promise-keeping God. I hope that's been of some benefit to you. Amen.